So we are now starting a series in the book of 1 John. And uh, believe it or not, people argue over who was the author of 1 John. It's not so helpful that he forgot to put the greeting. There's only one other letter in the New Testament like this, and that's Hebrews, where there's just no, hi, I'm Joe writing to you. The Horizonites, grace, peace, and mercy be to you. And I mean, even in Galatians, the book of Galatians, he, he starts off a little bit with a little bit of a greeting. But here, it doesn't tell us who wrote it. But we have really good reason to think it's John. I mean, whoever wrote this wrote at least two other letters. And whoever wrote this seems to have the same kind of style and vocabulary as the Gospel of John. And whoever wrote this seems to have even the same themes that are found in the book of Revelation. Whoever wrote this is known to the people. Whoever wrote this has a, a group of witnesses or eyewitnesses. And whoever wrote this is an eyewitness of the living Christ. Yes, whoever wrote this is an old, old man. He's an elder. He presents himself as writing to his little children who know him well. We know John ended up in Asia Minor around Ephesus. And almost all the church fathers from the first and second generation ascribed this to, the, to John. So we're just going to go with John wrote 1 John. Now, who is this guy, John? Let me give you a brief biography of John, just so you get a flavor of who this guy is, because you may get him wrong. He was born around 6 B.C. His father was Zebedee. That's why he's called the son of Zebedee. His mother was Salome. His brother was a guy named James. And we think he might have been a cousin of Jesus. He grew up in the northern area of Israel where Galilee is found. And there he made his living. His initial vocation was he was a fisher of fish. He was a fisher of food. But then Christ called him from his nets into his service with 11 other guys. And he was made a fisher of men. He was so tight with Jesus. Not just one of the 12, he was one of the three. We know that when Jesus decided he was going to first show his power by raising someone from the grave... He only brought a couple people, and John was one of them, into Jairus' household. We know when Jesus decided he was going to show his glory on the Mount of, Man, Mount of Transfiguration, that Jesus summoned Elijah and Moses, but he also summoned Peter, James, and John. And we know that Jesus, when he was getting ready to die for your sins on that night when his soul was torn up, asked a couple fellows to come deeper into the garden with him. And one of those was John. When it talks about someone leaning up against the breast of Jesus at the Lord's Supper, that's how tight John and Jesus were. That's why he developed this title as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So tight. Was he a calm man? Or was he a fiery guy? We normally think of, you know, doubting Thomas. We think of Peter, who can't stop putting his foot in his mouth. But we think of John kind of like this Art Pearson kind of fella. that's just so gentle and kind and ready to hug anyone and everyone. He was called a son of thunder. Why was he called a son of thunder? 
because there was one time when he was walking with Jesus and he saw people doing exorcisms and he said, hey, they're not with us. Let's go put a stop to that. On another day, he was going with the disciples through Samaria and they were mocking the Messiah. And he said, hey, Jesus, can we call down fire on these people? This is the guy who in the book of John will draw lines. He will call out brothers. He will call out you and me. This is no docile guy. He's a son of thunder, full of zeal. Is he faithful? To some degree, like all of us. When Jesus was arrested, Jesus predicted all the disciples will fail. They all ran, including John. But he seems to be the first who repented. Because before the night's over, he's found back at the judgment hall. Later, he's found around the cross. And when Jesus was reportedly risen from the grave, when the tomb was empty, he was, must have been an athlete because he outran Peter to the tomb. Was he faithful? Yes, in the end he was. He crossed many boundaries. He started by ministering to the Jews in Jerusalem, but then when he heard, hey, Something really good's happening in Samaria. He was the one who wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans, but now he's ready to go investigate and attest to, man, this is the same Holy Spirit. He and Peter go there. When Saul of Tarsus comes into town as Paul, the preacher, it's John who's one of the ones who meets with him. He crosses those boundaries. And later he will go into Asia Minor, and there he will minister in Ephesus and Smyrna and uh, Philadelphia and Laodicea. He crosses boundaries, and he endures for decades. Decades serving Christ, and not the easy way. He suffered persecution in Jerusalem. He then, when Jerusalem was about to be devastated, went to Ephesus. There he served Christ there until the day came that he prioritized Christ over Caesar. He prioritized the kingdom of God over patriotism. And there he was found to be a disturber of the peace. At that point, he was arrested, brought to Rome. Legend has it, according to Tertullian, that he was placed in a vat of boiling oil, but he didn't die. And when that didn't kill him, as an old man, he was sent to the Isle of Patmos, where he was probably forced to do hard labor around, around the other younger convicts who were there. And yet he persevered. When a new emperor came into being, he was brought back to Ephesus, and there he ministered, which is where we think he is writing this epistle of 1 John. But he is transformed. And I wanted to take that time to show you this is no docile, girly man. Oh, this is a guy of radical zeal, a son of thunder, standing tall in the midst of fire, who becomes known as the one of radical affection. God softens him. And God makes him a man who understands the radical affection that God has for him. And now he is one who is the apostle of love with radical affection towards his brothers and sisters. And that's why this whole series is entitled Radical Affection. It's what I want from me. It's what I want for you. 
that we would become so arrested by what God does for us? What, in, what kind of love is this that then causes us to have less love for ourselves and too much love for those around us to keep it inside? That the radical affection of God would be displayed in radical affection in us. Well, there's a problem here. In the church of Ephesus, there's this Gnostic vine that's growing, and it's kind of like the weed in the trees, that if you don't see it before you know it, you come back and it's wound its way up and through, and he's going to have to deal with this because this Gnostic heresy is starting to cause problems. We all know what the Gnostic heresy is, don't we? Okay, let me just simplify it for you because you see it around us all over the place. It's this idea that the body is bad, material is bad, this whole world is bad. It's like the, a, a, a sinking ship, and you would never want to polish the grass on this sinking ship. We're just going to get ourselves so spiritually minded. We've got to get out of this body. We've got to get off of this planet. We've got to get away from these people. And so, therefore, spiritual is good. Material is bad. What does this mean? Jesus' spirit is good. Jesus' body are you kidding me? That's bad. And so there was this docetism that had this, eye that, this idea that it was just imaginary, that Jesus was like a phantom, that he really wasn't a man. He just kind of looked like a man. There was also this serentheism, I believe is how you say it, which is Jesus just temporarily had a body. He was all like a spirit, but then, oh, no, there was this man, Jesus, but at his baptism, the Spirit came into this man, Jesus. But at his death on the cross, the Spirit left him. But that you don't have this being that is good spirit and good body. And therefore, you're not good spirit and good body. Therefore, hate your body, love your spirit, and what you need to do is escape. Now, how do you escape? They had these con men these preachers who would teach you special hidden knowledge. And if you would read their books and learn the secret, then you could learn how to leave that which is not good and how to advance into some sort of a nirvana someday. But this is causing real problems. This is messing with the doctrines of anthropology of who man is the doctrines of Christology, who Christ is. This is messing with the doctrine of soteriology, how you get saved by getting some higher knowledge. And it's causing problems because now there are counterfeit Christians. There are people in the church who are really not in the church. This is causing problems of assurance of salvation. There are people in the church who don't seem to have graduated to that higher degree of special knowledge. So now they're wondering, I still like my body too much. Am I really a Christian? And now they're doubting their salvation. Oh, this is causing a decadence problem. All right, if my spirit is good and my body is bad, then who cares? Forget the body. What I do with the body is of no importance. Therefore, live like hell while my soul focuses on heavenly things. This is causing schism in the church. There are different people teaching different things. There are people contradicting what Jesus says. And part of the church has already left. And the other part is wondering, should I stay or should I go now? This is where John finds himself. 
And so he starts writing. And you're ready to now read. 1 John, the first four verses. Here's the inspired word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, I'm talking concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He starts off by talking about something. Now, I know you want me to go to someone, but he doesn't. He starts off by talking about a something. It's, if you want to get grammatical here, it's a neuter pronoun. It's not a he or she. It is an it, a that, a something. That's what he talks about. This something, whatever we're talking about, is from the beginning. Ap arches which is used in the Septuagint for from the foundation of the world. That means this is nothing new. This is nothing New Testament. This is nothing dispensational. This is nothing we made up. This is not a plan B. No, this, there, there was something, and it's really, really, really old. This something that's really old, we have heard. Hmm. wonder what that could be, that something. And not just him, there were a group of us. We heard it with our ears. More than that, we saw it. Oh, now he's starting to go after the Gnostics. Because maybe there's some really good news that has been from the beginning that someone has told to us, and that's what he's talking about. But now we're talking about something that we've heard. It communicates something, but we have seen it with our eyes. And then he says, we have looked upon it. Well, isn't that the same thing as seeing? No, 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 no. This is like, you know, my dad used to talk to me about, there are some people who hear you, but then there are some people who listen. In marriage, men, that's important for us to know the difference. It's not good enough to hear our wife. We need to listen. Well, this is what they're talking about now, this contemplating. We have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon it. We have really investigated it like the light has come on and we're ready to respond properly. It's an aha moment. Oh, there's something old, something important. We've seen, we've heard, we've looked upon, and we even have touched. There's a progression of the senses here as more intimacy is developed. Um, isn't that true about communication? How it's one thing to text. It's another thing to send emails. It's another thing to get on and actually hear the voice of the one you're talking to. Oh, you want to communicate even more intimately? Do it by Zoom or FaceTime. But how about you being in the room, looking, hearing, smelling, maybe even every now and then, touching. John is saying, I want to talk to you about something that we have seen, heard, 
looked upon, touched. He uses a past tense when he talks about the touching. It's a definite thing. I'm not just talking about we had this process of touching. No, there was one time when we touched. And that word is very uncomfortable because it can actually mean grope. Maybe cling is a better word. It's the exact same word that Luke uses when the disciples saw the risen Lord. And he said, it's really me. I'm not a phantom. Go ahead, touch me. And they did. You getting this? The apostle saying, oh, there's a something. But you can't help reading this, especially if you have access to his gospel or the book of Revelation and start realizing this is a something who is a someone. The word of life, the logos. Back in the Old Testament, the Hebrews would talk about wisdom personified. That, yes, there's this general thing called wisdom, but it comes from the source of all wisdom. So you read like in Proverbs of wisdom that has children. The Greeks had this idea of the logos, the idea that there is this creative force. May the force be with you who is also logic. John has written about that in his gospel. In the beginning was the word. He writes of this in his revelation. When he has the visions on Patmos, he talks about seeing him who is the word of God. So John's being very, very consistent here. The word of life. This can be the word that leads to life, the word that talks about life, the word that belongs to the life. I think he's talking about that because Jesus Christ said, I am the resurrection, I am the life, and though you die, if you believe in me, yet you live. This is the hope that our friend Art has and Bev has for her husband, that when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by me, we all know how Art served Christ and how he couldn't get enough of telling people about Christ. His days of suffering are coming to an end because he knows the word of life. And there is a definite article here, the. There's not a word of life. This is the word of life. And in a second, you're going to see a which or a who for another pronoun as John is making it very clear. I'm talking to you people about a something who is a someone. And what has happened with this something and the someone? He has manifested himself. He has shown up. He has revealed himself. This is glorious. This is a blessing for people to realize that there is a God who has shown himself. And because he has manifested himself, this word of life, this eternal life, this one who is with the Father, before the face of the Father. What's the result of this? That's why we do what we do as apostles. That's why we do what we do as preachers. That's why you do what you do as evangelists. Are you kidding me? There's an incredible, old, ancient something that is the someone who is the word of life, the eternal life, the logic, the force, the creator, who showed himself and he didn't come to damn us? i got to tell somebody about this. 
That's why the major verb in this whole passage is proclaim, proclaim, share. That's why I go to places, he says, like Ephesus. That's why I still talk about him and write letters on the Isle of Patmos. That's why I stand and suffer. That's why I'm writing you people, he says in this letter. I proclaim. I testify. I do it verbally. I do it through my life. I do it through my writings. I'll do it through my death. But I've got to share this. It's almost like I can't help myself, which is exactly what he says in Acts 4.20. We can't stop sharing what we've seen and what we've heard because he's met his God. He understands the radical affection, and it's causing him to respond by proclaiming. But here, why does he proclaim? Two reasons. Do you see it in the text? That you, too, may fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's make sure we slow down here about this fellowship idea. This is huge in John. Fellowship is used four times. Little children, like we're all in the family and I'm your dad talking to you, 14 times. He calls them beloved. Six times. Brother. Three times. He talks of himself as an elder father figure. 13 times. And he writes about love. 35 times in this one book. This is the goal. That someone who is a something has to be shared. Because I want to be involved in bringing you people into this family because you too can be a part of this incredible group that we call the household of faith. It's a household of faith that is horizontal. He starts with that one. That you too can have fellowship with us. Notice, the something who is a someone is vital for you to have fellowship with us. There are lots of people in the upstate who are our friends, but there are some who fellowship. There are a lot of religious people that are going to church today who are our friends, but that doesn't mean we fellowship. And not all the fellowship is within this one local church. We have brothers and sisters in other church, some who are our friends and some with whom we fellowship. Your Christology, what you believe about Christ, his hypostatic union, his incarnation. Your anthropology, what do you believe about man, spirit and body, material and immaterial. Your soteriology, what does salvation really look like? This is the doctrine around which fellowship begins and is enjoyed. And this fellowship that is this way is a fellowship that is this way with the Father and the Son. So he's passionate because he wants his readers to come back to the fellowship or be added to the fellowship and some of them need to be disfellowshipped because they don't believe the same things about Christ that Christ taught and his apostles proclaimed. But that's one of the two reasons. He's got to share this someone who is a something that there might be more fellowship. And secondly, that there might be more joy. More joy for whom? This is where your translations differ. 
There's manuscriptic evidence that he does this because he wants your joy to be happy. But I think most of my friends who know what they're doing prefer the ESV, which says, I want my joy to increase. Well, that's kind of weird. You think about trying to tell people about Jesus Christ so that they might enjoy fellowship and so that they might have joy. That's true. I can go to other places in the Bible to talk about that. But this is saying, I want you to know about my Savior and his radical affection so that you can be included and that my joy can be full. What does he mean by this? He means the same thing that Paul did in Philippians 2.2. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love. This guy, John, has been blessed with the manifestation of Jesus. He's seen him. He's a disciple. He's a minister. He's a suffering saint. He's a best friend of Jesus. He's an elder who loves his congregation. He's a son of thunder. He's got radical affection. Picture this. He's been over here on the Isle of Patmos, and he's thought, man, everyone has left me. Was this all for real? Did I live my life for naught? How is this Jesus kingdom of God thing working? And then all of a sudden he has this glorious vision where he sees the majestic, resurrected, ascending Son of God coming down saying, I still got this. I still got this. I still win. He makes it back to Ephesus. He sees these people tempted to swallow this Gnostic junk, and he can't handle it anymore. His joy is being robbed. They're messing with his family. They're messing with his people. He's got to teach them truth. He's got to bring them home. He's got to add to it. This is what he means. I am writing this to you because I want you to be included, and I need my joy back. And I can't have joy as the pastoral figure if my children aren't walking in truth, which is exactly what he'll say at the end of 3 John. I find no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in truth. And so that's the first four verses as this impassioned son of thunder, full of affectionate man of God, is calling out to his people saying, are you really going to turn from this? Two applications and we're done. First, do you want fellowship? Let's make sure you understand what being disfellowshipped from God looks like. Maybe I can whet your appetite. We come into this world and God is not our father. As a matter of fact, he says to people who do not believe, you're children of the devil, as we've seen in other passages. So God is not your father. The spirit doesn't make you a son. Jesus is not your brother. Jesus is not your spouse. And the household of faith is not your home. Let me use some different terminology. You are not like the original Adam and Eve. You're like the second version of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve 2.0, which is no good. You can't walk with God in the cool of the day. You can't dwell with God in his garden. 
You can't ascend the holy hill of the Lord. You can't enter the holy of holies. You can't eat at his table. You really can't hear because you don't have ears to see. You don't, can't see because you're blind. And to touch, are you kidding me? Not even Moses asked for that. Moses said, I hear you. I'd like to see you. And God says, you can't see me and live. What's this touching of God? Are you kidding? There is no heaven for you. And the final words of Psalm 23, where you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that's just not in your inheritance plan. That's someone else's benefit. Therefore, there is no forgiveness. There is no peace. You don't enjoy communing with God because you really don't want to have anything to do with Him. You don't have joy. You don't have His wisdom. And you definitely have no power to save yourself or even fix yourself. And you have no future. And like I just said, it's not like, oh, I wish I had him. You don't even like him if you're in that condition. You wish he didn't exist. You wish you could rid yourself of him. As a matter of fact, you'll turn to anything, anywhere, just to find some of those benefits if it'll temporarily be given to you. You're not seeking God in that condition. No one seeks God, and that's what it looks like to be disfellowshipped. But there's good news. You're not seeking God, but God is the one who says, I seek worshipers in John chapter 4. God is the one who says, I seek sinners. That's Jesus' language. And so you have God seeking Adam and Eve as they're hiding behind a bush. You have God seeking Abraham and Sarah as they're in a far-off land. You have God seeking Lot and his daughters as they're on some little hill outside the burning Sodom and Gomorrah. You have God seeking Hagar and her family. You have God seeking Israel. You have God seeking Assyria. You have God seeking Nineveh. You have God seeking even Jonah. You have God seeking the Samaritan woman. You have God seeking tax collectors. You have God seeking self-righteous, pharisaical prudes. Yes, this is what God does. He seeks and saves the lost. And when God seeks, he always finds those who are his. His sheep know his voice. And what does he do? He then enters fellowship. He died on the cross and was disfellowshipped for you as he then declared, my God, my God, what happened to the fellowship? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Knowing that into, my hand, into your hands I commit my spirit, knowing that one day body, soul, and spirit would all return back to God where he enjoys fellowship, but he didn't go back to God without paying the debt necessary for us who are disfellowshipped to be fellowshipped because of him. Do you want this? Do you want all of those benefits that I told you you don't have? John writes, I write this, that you too may have fellowship with us. And so I stand up here with all of the gumption that I have and say, come on, why perish over there? Don't be our friend fellowship with us there's room for you second question and we're done do you want 
joy. Or in the title of this sermon, do you want to be joyful? This is what happens when the radical affection of God hits us, and then we start having it from the inside out, and then all of a sudden, somebody's messing with our joy. I don't know what to do. I got members that aren't here. I got people investigating other faiths. I got children only halfway interested in my Jesus. I got neighbors who are turning from one idol to the next, and all of a sudden, my joy's messed up. Why? Because I was made to enjoy that which God enjoys. And what does God enjoy? He tells us that when the angels see someone come to Christ, they throw a fiesta. It says that he claps and he dances and he rejoices and he sings over his beloved. He's like the father of the prodigal son who is living life and when he sees his son coming back home, it's party time again. Where's the robe? Where's the sandals? Where's the ring? I can't wait. This is what our father's like as his joy is expressed when he brings in his own. So how then can we have joy? When we realize there's a something who is a someone who absolutely has to be shared, and then we get the process of writing, of doing social media and advertising our Christ, of living in a consistent way that makes people wonder, what's the deal with that family? of inviting people to come and worship and watching them see us sing with all of our might. We get to study and know the truth and help people understand the error of false teaching. And we get to gamble. That's right. We actually get to take a chance of ruining a relationship because we care for those people so much that we can't just pretend we're happy being friends, but that we want them to enjoy the fellowship with us. And so, would you like fellowship? Come on. And would you like to have more joy? Would you like for this Presbyterian church to get a little giddy every now and then? Watch what happens when we start sharing our faith, when we start seeing the lost come to Christ, when we start rescuing the wandering, when our children come back home. Oh, man, that's when it's time to sing. And that's what Christ has done in my heart this week. I've been amazed at his radical affection for a sinner like me. And I just wanted to express my radical affection for you so that you would get out of here this week and show your radical affection for those who don't know our Christ and aren't in fellowship. Those are the first four verses. There's more to come. Let's pray. Let's sing.